well, the Dubai First Royal MasterCard is perhaps the most exclusive credit card in the world. Uh, most of the cardholders are members of the uh, Saudi or UAE royal families. It comes with no spending limits. Those who own it get a personal relationship manager who is available to them anytime, day or night. And the card itself has a diamond embedded in the middle of it. It is not your average credit card. The benefits of this card are great, but it is very exclusive. There are significant barriers to entry into the select club of card owners. Even the richest of the rich cannot just sign up for this credit card. They must be invited. It is by invitation only, and it is not an invitation that is given to many. There are significant barriers or obstacles to owning a Dubai First Royal MasterCard. Well, thankfully, thankfully, the kingdom of God is not like that. Jesus extends the invitation to everyone to enter in. As opposed to the Dubai First Royal MasterCard, we have seen throughout Luke that it is the poor, the maimed, the blind and the lame who are consistently invited to enter into God's kingdom. The point is that God's kingdom is not for the great, but the humble. And that is because interest to the kingdom of God, entrance into it, is not something that you can qualify for. It is not something that you can earn. There is nothing that you can do to deserve the invitation. Entrance into God's kingdom does not come by achieving a certain status or accumulating enough merit. No, the true barrier to entrance into the kingdom of God is our own sinful pride and self-sufficiency. Entrance into God's kingdom requires a willingness to give up everything to follow Jesus. Well, friends, that is what we see in our text for today. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be in verses 18 through 30. You can also find that text printed in the back of your bulletin. And now last week in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus taught that salvation is by God's grace alone through faith alone. We cannot commend ourselves to God through our own righteousness. It's not our own goodness that saves us. Well, this week we really continue on a similar theme as we encounter a man who is focused on what he must do to gain eternal life rather than what he must lose to follow Jesus. So please follow along as I start reading in verse 18 of Luke 18. A ruler asked him, being Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, You still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Then who can be saved? 
He replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, look, we have left what we had and followed you. So he said to them, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife or brothers or sisters, parents or children, because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just read that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear today. Father, that we would come and behold wondrous things from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the main idea of that passage that we just read, and therefore this sermon this morning, is this. You must rely on God alone, because it is God alone who saves. You must rely on God alone, because it is God alone who saves. I have three points to help us consider that idea this morning. The first, a good question. A good question. Second, a good test. A good test. And third, a great God. So let's look at that first point, a good question. Uh, This man who came to Jesus with a question, see that in verse 18, was a man of some importance and status. He's described by Luke as a ruler. Uh, This respected member of society came to Jesus with what is a very good question. In fact, he asked perhaps the most important question you can ask. How can I inherit eternal life? How can I be saved? Friends, if you are here and you have never really thought about that question, you should. And my prayer is that you will think about it this morning and in these verses, you will find the answer. But notice the way in which this young ruler asked his good question. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how can I earn it? How can I qualify? Friends, in our pride, we all want to be able to prove ourselves as good enough. We want to be able to rely on ourselves, to be able to be told what it is that I can do. What can I do? What must I do? We're all looking for what we can do. But friends, this is not how salvation works. This man had a good question, how can I be saved? But he was already starting to go down the road of the wrong answer. What can I do in my own strength to get it? He was not so different from the Pharisee in Jesus' parable from last week. Well, therefore, Jesus began performing open-heart surgery on this young ruler in order to expose the fact that this man was relying on himself and he was trusting in his possessions rather than in God. Jesus sought to take his scalpel and cut away this man's self-reliance. So Jesus first asked why this man called him good. Why did this man call him good teacher when it is God alone who is good? And friends, truly it is God alone who is good. The Dutch theologian Hermann Bavink wrote this. According to scripture, God is the sum total of all 
perfections. Friends, God's goodness describes his moral perfection. God is absolutely perfect in every way. There are no shortcomings in God's character. In all that God does, each and everything that God has ever done and ever will do is good and right. But friends, God's goodness is more than just that. Bob Inc. also wrote this. As the supreme good, God is also the overflowing fountain of all goods. In him alone is everything creatures seek and need. He is the supreme good for all creatures. It is he toward whom all creatures, consciously or unconsciously, willingly or unwillingly strive. The object of every creature's desire. A creature finds no rest except in God alone. Friends, we are the creatures, those who have been created by God. And Bob Inc. is writing here that God is the source of all good. Any good that we possess, well, it comes from God. Furthermore, it is God alone who is our highest good. It is God alone who can satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. In him alone is to be found true joy and peace and security and rest. Now notice this rich young ruler has everything the world could offer. He has status. He has money. But it was not enough. It did not satisfy. He came to Jesus looking for more. Friends, that is because the things of this earth cannot satisfy the longings of the soul. Now, when Jesus said that God alone is good, he was not denying his own goodness. Jesus is God, one with the Father. He is good. Jesus said what he did. He questioned this man in the way he did in order to expose the fact that this ruler did not understand true goodness at all. This ruler had an incomplete and insufficient understanding of what true goodness is all about. So Jesus began listing several of the Ten Commandments, specifically the ones dealing with a love of neighbor. Now, the the Ten Commandments are something of a summary of God's standard of righteousness, the definition of God's standard of goodness. They summarize God's law, which is his standard of goodness and righteousness. After Jesus listed these Ten Commandments, how did this young ruler respond? By saying, oh, I've kept all those commandments. I am good. To recap, Jesus just told this man, God alone is good. But then this ruler, me too, I'm good too. Just like the Pharisee from last week, this man was trusting in his own righteousness. Uh, We looked at uh, the great reformer Martin Luther a bit last week in the sermon. And uh, the New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner writes this about Martin Luther and his view of God's law or God's commandments. He writes this. Luther especially argued that God gave the law to expose human sin. The law reveals the rebellion, idolatry, and unbelief of the human heart. God gave the law then to put us to death, to kill us, 
so that we would see the enormity of our sin. One of Luther's favorite illustrations was that God used the law as a hammer. Human beings are convinced of their own righteousness or goodness, and God needs a mighty tool to crush our self-righteous presumption. He then quotes Luther. Therefore, this presumption of righteousness is a huge and horrible monster. To break and crush it, God needs a large and powerful hammer. That is the law, which is the hammer of death, the thunder of hell, and the lightning of divine wrath. To what purpose? To attack the presumption of righteousness, which is a rebellious, stubborn, and stiff-necked beast. Schreiner then concludes, God shatters our self-confidence and self-righteousness so that we will put our faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus wielded the hammer of the law in his interaction with this ruler. But it was as if the man did not feel the blow. He was blind to his own sin. He thought, I'm good. I think if we're honest, we know that most people are not too different from this man. If you ask the average person why they think they will go to heaven, well, if they do indeed think they will go to heaven, they will probably answer like this. Well, I'll go to heaven because I'm a generally good person. I'm pretty good. Friends, maybe that is what you think as well. Maybe you think, at heart, I'm a good person. Yes, I make mistakes from time to time. But on the whole, I'm pretty good. But consider these words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. A few verses later in verse 28. Everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then right at the beginning and end of that section in Matthew 5, 20 and 48, this is what Jesus says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, the most righteous people of the day, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Friends, God does not just demand outward conformity to the law, but obedience from the heart. Take a look at that list of commandments that Jesus gave to this rich young ruler again. Friends, can any of you really say that you are good? Have you kept God's law perfectly? Oh, how quick we are to gloss over the true demands of God's law. How easily we deceive ourselves into thinking, God doesn't really care that much. Surely he's just going to overlook a few sins. After all, I'm pretty good. Friends, there is no such thing as good enough or pretty good in God's eyes. Galatians 3.10 Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Church, do you see the folly of trusting in your own goodness? You are not good enough. It is not your own goodness that you need. 
you need the goodness and righteousness of Jesus Christ that comes by grace and through faith. This ruler asked a good question, but then Jesus gives him a good test to expose his heart. That's the second point of the sermon, a good test. This ruler was deceived about his own goodness, so Jesus wanted to expose his self-righteousness, his self-importance, his self-sufficiency. Though this man claimed that he was good, Jesus said this man still lacked one thing that he needed for eternal life. Well, Jesus knew what this man treasured. He treasured his great wealth. He treasured his riches. So Jesus tested him. He told him he must give up that which he truly treasured. Well, this young ruler believed himself to be good, but in doing so, he, well, not in doing so, but he had violated the very first commandment by worshiping his great wealth. His wealth was his idol. He was trusting in his wealth, not God. Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, it's important to understand that this man's wealth was not the problem. The Bible does not condemn people for being rich. It is the love of money that is the problem. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Luke 16.13, you cannot serve both God and money. Well, this rich young ruler was trusting in his money, and so Jesus told him that he must give it up. Friends, the question is not what we must do to inherit eternal life. The question is not how might I earn it. The question is what must I give up? You must give up anything that you are relying on other than Jesus Christ. As E. Earl Ellis put it, Jesus always requires from one just that earthly security upon which one would lean. Jesus always requires from one just that earthly security upon which one would lean. Well, the rich young ruler's reaction to Jesus' demand made it abundantly clear that he was leaning on his money, and he was not leaning on Jesus. I look at verse 23. Luke records that he went away extremely sad because he was very rich. He should have been overjoyed. Jesus answered his question. Jesus told him how he could be saved. But he was not interested in following Jesus if it required any self-sacrifice. As one commentator put it, his wealth and all it meant to him for position, status, comfort, and security prevented him from entering eternal life. Friends, his wealth was a self-imposed barrier to entry to the kingdom of God. Friends, if you are here and not a Christian, I wonder what self-imposed barrier you have set up that is preventing you from receiving eternal life. Friends, what are you afraid to lose? You must be willing to give up anything and everything to follow Jesus. And friends, Jesus never demands less than that you give up your sin 
and that you give up your self-reliance. And Christian, the world, the flesh, the devil, they are constantly tempting you to look to anything other than Jesus for security, for satisfaction, for comfort, and for salvation. And so church, just take a moment to ask yourself, what is it in your life that would make you extremely sad to give up for the sake of your Savior? What is it, if Jesus demanded it from you, would make you extremely sad to give up for his sake? What might you be holding on to? Maybe that thing is money or financial security. Money is not evil, but we do not want to miss the force of Jesus' message here. Now look, I do not believe that God requires everyone to sell everything they have. And just in the very next chapter of Luke, chapter 19, we have Zacchaeus, who does not sell everything he has. And yet God tells him that salvation has come to his house. Nevertheless, church, do not be quick to dismiss Jesus' words here about money. Jesus is telling you that following him should completely reshape your attitude towards money. This is true whether you are rich or poor. The poor can love money just as much as the rich, even if they don't have very much of it. My friends, the, the Bible calls Christians to a radical generosity. Matthew 6, store up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. Acts 20, it is more blessed to give than receive. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. 1 John 3, 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And we could pile up verse after verse that say similar things from Scripture. Well, Professor Charles White tells this story about John Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist Church. Now, as a, as a young man, John Wesley noticed a woman who was in need of a coat. And so uh, Wesley reached into his pocket. He was going to get out the money that this woman needed to buy a coat so she could stay warm in the winter. But he did not have enough. And so the Lord convicted him at that moment that perhaps the reason that he did not have enough was that he had not been spending his money very wisely. And Professor White then writes this. Perhaps as a result of this incident, in the year 1731, Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. He records that one year, Wesley's income was 30 pounds and his living expenses 28 pounds. So he had two pounds to give away. The next year, his income doubled, but he still managed to live on 28 pounds. So he had 32 pounds to give to the poor. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. Instead of letting his expenses rise with his income, he kept them to 28 pounds and gave away 62 pounds. Wesley believed that with increasing income, what should rise is not the Christian standard of living, but the standard of giving. Now, church, I am not saying that the only way to be a faithful Christian is to live exactly like John Wesley. Wesley himself encouraged Christians to save money for the future and care for their families. But his relationship with the Lord did radically alter his relationship with his money. Christian, are you serving God or are you serving money? 
And when was the last time you even took time to evaluate how you were using your money? Mark 8:36. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Friends, Jesus confronted the rich young ruler on his wealth because that is what he trusted in. But it is clear that Jesus intends us to think about more than just money in these verses. You just look down at verses 29 through 30 for a minute, which we will get to in a moment. Oh, he spoke to his disciples about leaving house or family for the sake of the kingdom of God. Jesus' larger point in these verses is that if you love anything more than Jesus or place your greatest trust in anything other than Jesus, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus always requires from us just that earthly security upon which one would lean. Friends, money may not be the thing that you were tempted to rely on. So again, I ask you this morning, what would make you extremely sad to give up for the sake of Jesus. Reputation? Something else? Are you wanting the easy road to eternal life? One that requires no sacrifice. For the gate is wide and broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. But how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. And few find it. And church, if you think what Jesus is calling you to here is not fair or reasonable, that it is too demanding or, or too difficult, friends, just take a, a moment to remember what Jesus gave up for your sake. Jesus gave up the riches of heaven to come to earth and to serve you by giving his life for you. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Now, Christian, what would you withhold from your Savior, who has given everything for you? See, this ruler asked a good question. Jesus gave him a good test. This points us to the third and final point of the sermon, a great God. We find Jesus' commentary on the rich young ruler in verses 24 and 25. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now again, someone can be both rich and a Christian. It is the love of money that is the problem. But Jesus gave this warning to the rich here because it is so tempting for those with lots of money to trust in their riches rather to trust than to trust in Jesus. It is a great barrier to entrance to the kingdom of God. Well, therefore, Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus is using a bit of exaggeration to make a point. The camel, one of the biggest animals on earth, the largest in Palestine. The eye of a sewing needle, one of the smallest openings that you can imagine. Wealth is a great barrier 
to entry. But I love how one scholar put it. Jesus' dramatic point may be an intentional exaggeration, but it is also reality. No camel could ever squeeze through such an opening, and it is impossible for the rich, indeed for anyone, to enter the kingdom by virtue of their own resources. Well, this seems to be exactly where the mind of the disciples went. Just look at verse 26. As soon as Jesus said this, they asked, Then who can be saved? No camel can fit through the eye of the needle. So, Jesus, who can be saved? Now, in in Jesus' day, wealth was seen as a sign of God's favor and blessing. Unfortunately, I think the same thing is true in our day. Uh, Often when I talk to people about spiritual things, they often report to me that the evidence of God's work in their lives is that things are generally going well in their lives. They believe God's favor equals good circumstances. Riches, things going generally well in life. They look outward rather than inward where the true evidence of God's work is to be found. Well, this is how the people of Jesus' day thought. So the disciples wondered if even the rich cannot enter, these people who we believe are favored by God, then who can be saved? And this comes right after Jesus' parable from last week when he said it was the tax collector and not the seemingly righteous Pharisee who was justified in God's sight. So the disciples understandably wonder who can be saved if not the rich, and if not those who seem at least outwardly the most righteous, the Pharisees, then who can be saved? Well, church, Jesus is... Jesus replies with some of the most comforting and most assuring words of the entire Bible. His reply is simple and easy to understand, and yet it contains some of the deepest theology to be found anywhere in the Bible. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Friends, salvation is not about what you can do or must do. It's all about what God has done and will do. We could list any number of human achievements that at one time were thought impossible. Running a mile in under four minutes, climbing Mount Everest, human flight, space travel. We look at those human achievements and we're tempted to believe that people can accomplish anything if they just try hard enough. I mean, how often have you heard it said that you can accomplish anything that you set your mind to? Kids, let me just tell you right now, that's not true. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. And friends, so much of the Bible was written to demonstrate this truth. God supernaturally rescued Noah and his family from the flood. He miraculously rescued his people from Egypt through mighty signs and wonders. By the hand of the Lord, Gideon and his 300 men defeated the large and mighty army of Midian. God rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. He rescued Daniel from the mouth of the lions. He caused a great fish to swallow Jonah and spit him back on shore. He raised Jesus from the dead. And he gives life to his people. He gives life to dead sinners by his spirit. Friends, turn with me for a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2. Go a little bit to the right in your Bible. We are going to start in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is how Paul puts it. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. Skip ahead to verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. In other words, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Skip ahead to verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Oh, friends, what is impossible with man, salvation, is possible with God. Friends, God did for you what you could not do on your own. He sent Jesus to earth to pay the penalty for your sins that you might have eternal life. Jesus perfectly kept all the righteous requirements of the law. He never sinned. He did what you could not do. He did what you have not done. And on the basis of his perfect life, he died a bloody death on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for sin that you deserved to pay. And then three days later, God raised him from the dead that you might have eternal life in him. But friends, if you are here and you are not a Christian, I hope that you see that you cannot make it to heaven on your own. The answer to that question of how you can inherit eternal life is to simply place your faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, faith is not a work that you do. It is simply to raise the white flag of surrender. It is to humbly receive what God has done for you. And Christian, you are here in a Christian. Know that you are a Christian because God chose you before the foundation of the world. If you are a Christian, it is because Jesus that lived the life that you could not live. And Jesus died the death that you deserve to die. If you are a Christian, it is because God in the richness of his mercy poured out his spirit to you and has given you a new heart. If you are a Christian, it is because by the spirit you have been born again and made alive, though you were dead in your sins. You have been saved by grace. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Church, your salvation is the supernatural work of God. Church, your sanctification is the work of God. Your perseverance in the faith is the work of God. Your eventual glorification will also be the work of God. It is God who saved you and it is God who will keep you to the end. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. That he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And church, what what greater encouragement can be found for us to pray always and never give up than this glorious truth is what is impossible with man is possible with God. So church, keep praying for the salvation of your friends and family. 
Keep praying for the salvation of the Emirati people. Keep asking the Lord to help you to fight your sin. Keep turning to the Lord during times of trial and difficulty. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Why would you lean on anything or anyone else? Well, after hearing all this, Peter basically said, We disciples, we're okay, aren't we? We've left what we had and followed you after all, Jesus. I think Peter's probably standing a little bit on his own righteousness here, bragging about what he has done to inherit eternal life. But the Lord was gracious to Peter and gracious to the disciples, and he gives them a glorious promise. Look at verses 29 through 30. So he said to them, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife or brothers or sisters, parents or children, because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. My friends, Jesus promised that if you give up your family for the kingdom of God, then you will receive many times more at this time, in this life, and in the life to come. If your family forsakes you because of your faith in God, if you move away from parents or siblings for the cause of Christ, if you give up on the idea of ever having a family, maybe by refusing to marry a non-Christian or by committing yourself to lifelong singleness in the service of the Lord, then Jesus promises that you will receive many times more at this time, in this life, and in the life to come. Now friends, Jesus is at least partially speaking here about the church. Christian, when you are saved, you are adopted into the family of God. When you receive God as your father, you instantly receive a great host of new brothers and sisters. You become part of a a new family, a family that God himself commands to love you and to care for you. A Christian, the, the church is the bride of Christ. He loves it. He gave his life for it, and he gave it for your good. Do you treasure it like that? Do you view the church as your family? Do you treat the people in this church as a family? Are you seeking to be family for those who are maybe far away from their physical family? Are you here regularly getting to know the members of this family? Do you seek to care for them as you would care for your own biological family? Are you living out the commitments that we have made to one another in our church covenant? Friends, the church is a good gift. You can lament what you do not have, or you can rejoice in the good gift that God has given you. Friends, Jesus is not promising earthly riches or a life free of difficulty here on earth. But he is promising that the sacrifice that Jesus requires, that the sacrifices that Jesus requires, that they're worth it. Friends, you get the church, you get the people of God when you're saved. But also just think of all the promises of Jesus that you can rely on even in this life. The promise to provide. The promise to hear your prayers. The promise to give you rest if you come to him. The promise to never leave you or forsake you. And we could go on and on and on. Remember what Herman Bovink wrote. 
In Him alone is everything creatures seek and need. He is the supreme good for all creatures. He is the object of every creature's desire. A creature finds no rest except in God alone. Friends, wealth did not satisfy this rich young ruler, and it will not satisfy you, nor will anything else on this earth. It is in God alone that you can find true satisfaction. And friends, all these promises of Jesus, even these promises that we can count on in this life, well, they will find complete fulfillment in the life to come. Christian, the day that Jesus returns and ushers you into the life to come is the day that your salvation will be complete. It is the day that your joy will be complete. It is the day when you will receive your full and highest good. You will receive God himself, and you will see him face to face and dwell with him for all eternity. You will have the object of your heart's desires, God himself. Friends, faith, Biblical faith is believing that these promises are true, and it's to stake your life on them. It is to rely on them, to flee from sin and trust in them. It is to believe, biblical faith is to believe that it is worth it to follow Jesus, no matter what earthly cost may come. This is how the author of Hebrews puts it. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Church, do you think that Peter and the other disciples made the wrong choice in following Jesus, even though it cost most of them their lives? Most of the apostles, I think all but John, were martyred for their faith. Do you think that Peter and the apostles made the wrong choice in following Jesus? I'm going to go ahead and say, I doubt you think they made the wrong choice. And friends, if they did not make the wrong choice, then why are you sad to give up the things of this earth to follow him? This is how Jim Elliott, the missionary who was martyred while taking the gospel to the jungles of Ecuador, famously put it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray.